0: This is for the nerves, this is for the brainiacs, this is what we deserve. Go ahead and play it back. No way, I know. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Solve for Why Vlogcast. This is episode number 45, and today is gonna to be a little bit different than the episodes we've done in the past. I'm actually flying solo today, and briefly after this intro, I'm gonna kick it to a previously recorded interview that I did with one half of Pigtails' production, specifically Travis Lindner. Now, Travis was a bit of the mastermind behind the To Be Determined documentary. He did the vast majority of the editing, the directing, the piecing together, and the producing. Um, It was obviously, of course, a full Pigtails production, and everybody had a hand in it. But Travis actually went insane throughout the process, uh, shouldering the majority of the load. Before we go to that interview, though, I do want to discuss a little bit of what happened this past Saturday with regards to ACR and the Bill Perkins Landon Tice Challenge. For those of you who've been following along on Twitter, uh, you probably saw I leaked a text conversation between myself, my CEO Andre Hangshua, and the marketing team of ACR, including Phil Nagy. Now, I want to be very clear with what brought this on. This was a group decision between both camps both Landon and Perkins, um, specifically with regards to transparency of everything that was happening behind the scenes. When I personally saw this text exchange where ACR was insinuating that they wanted to bet the match in some sort of capacity, uh, a lot of red flags went up and I thought that it was a massive conflict of interest. Quite frankly, if there was another platform to play on, I would have very much argued heavily for both of these camps to consider switching to uh, a more reputable site. With that said, I don't have necessarily enough skin in the game to make that decision, and both parties actually agreed that they felt like the risk was relatively low that any shady business was taking place. Fine. With that said, both camps also agreed that this information was absolutely mandatory to get out to the public, and being that I was the one who was involved in the text exchange, everyone had decided that it was going to be me to release Now, the issue with this is that I end up becoming a bit of a fall guy in the sense that I don't think the majority of the public understood that Perkins was very insistent upon these messages being released, as well as Landon's camp. There were some mistakes made along the way. Obviously, my leaking Phil Nagy's phone number being the biggest of them all. I think it was up for a grand total of two minutes, but it was two minutes far too long. Uh, And for that, I apologize. With that said, I want to make it abundantly clear that I'm in no position to have a say one way or the other with regards to how that text message exchange impacts this match or how it impacts the public perception of ACR. My sole purpose was to just be the messenger. And I think that we did a pretty good job of doing our due diligence and informing the entire betting community that there was a conflict of interest at place. With that said, all parties have agreed that it's not necessarily that big of a deal and they plan to continue the match moving forward. So I just wanted to get out all of the details and make it abundantly clear what the purpose was behind uh, releasing those text messages, which uh, I also want to be abundantly clear and uh, poke holes in something that Nagy said on his stream. It was 100% of the messages. Uh, there was nothing else said. And secondarily, uh, it wasn't with any sort of intent on welching on a bet or anything along those lines. I was instructed by both Perkins camp and Tice's camp to release said messages Uh, so I I think that that's really important for everybody to kind of understand moving forward. Um, With that in mind, uh, it's all behind everybody now. There really isn't much more to say moving forward, and I'm looking forward to calling this match the rest of the way through. There are now four sessions in, possibly five by the time this is released. Uh, Landon is out to a slight lead, but they're playing about break-even with the spot, so it should make for a fun gambling experience for everybody, hopefully We see a bloodbath before it's all said and done one way or the other, and the people get what they want. So with that said, I'm going to throw it now to the interview that I conducted with Travis back in December of 2020. And I hope you all enjoy a little bit of the behind the scenes for To Be Determined. So this is it, huh? This
1: is weird. (laughs) This is super weird. I was trying to think about how many times... How many times do you think I've interviewed you in the last four years or something? Like, sit down. Enough
0: where I used to get excited to do them to the point where now I dread them. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, me too. Like,
0: oh, we're gonna talk about my mom again. <laughs> yeah, sounds... this is a
1: this is the time for you to get some paybacks. Yeah, I know justice. that sounds uh, that sounds fucking. Fascinating. What was it like when something horrible happened to you, Travis? <laughs> oh, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs>
0: Travis Lindner, uh, one part of the the Pigtails production company. Mm -hmm. I don't know where to threw you threw me off. This is already terrible. Don't put this on me. This is, you know what this is? This is uh, you trying to regain control of an
1: interview that you're not leading. I'm gonna be fighting that the entire time. Uh And also like trying to turn it back on you.
0: And it'll work because I'm used to being the subject of your interviews. Right. So I will immediately fall back into my beta position and I'm just
1: like, what do you want to know about me? When you're interviewing me, does it make you think about your mom? (laughs) <laughs> can we do another one of those deep dives yeah <laughs> let's get into
0: that no i, d- I did want to bring you on and i want to bring justin on in the future um we've been working with you guys since the beginning of solve for why and i think that you know I've, I've said this a million times over that pigtails production is by far our greatest asset and i think that that even goes above and beyond like what christian and i know about poker so uh I hold you guys in very high regards, and I think that oftentimes you're kind of just like brushed aside when it comes to the success of our content.
1: I don't think that we ever feel slighted by that because, you know, the intention of this is to grow the business, and our business grows with yours. Sure. You know, until there's a a market out there for poker content that really also broadly looks into other fields and stuff like that, which is the intention of this podcast, Mm. Um, you know, We don't know anything about poker. Yeah, Um, but but that's not that's not the the value you guys provide. No, no, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) But all I mean is, you know, when we started, it was what two thousand fifteen or something. End of fifteen, early sixteen, yeah. Right, Um, because you'd asked us to go out to Vegas to film a promo for the Academy. Yeah. And when we did that, it's a weird sliding doors thing. Like if you hadn't then. Um, dead money hadn't become a thing, mm-hmm. uh, and beyond that, then launching the subsite and continuing to make content—like I have no idea what we would be doing—and like, it's kind of fascinating because like you can almost blame me
0: in some regard. You you could potentially <laughs> just be like a Hollywood writer at this point, but.
1: Yeah, well, uh, at the time we were just getting into like doing video work full time. Yeah, So it's hard to say that you're the cause of my downfall.
0: Yeah, and honestly I I do feel uh, somewhat responsible probably both ways in the sense that at least you're not
1: making wedding videos. Filming weddings made me uh, stop believing in weddings, in love. (laughs) yeah, agency, uh, independent thought. Like people just sure. have the same wedding over and over again. And, right, right. Same scripture being it. referenced. Yeah. Same speeches. Yeah, yeah. It's just torture. What an industry, though. Yeah. They what make a an lot industry of money. to get into. They
0: make a lot of money. So this is already going a little bit off script, which I'm totally up for. I do think it's important to kind of like outline the relevance to us as a company mm-hmm. uh, with you and Justin. So, you know, kind of as you mentioned, we started working together in 2015. I think I knew you guys maybe a little bit prior to that through... You knew Justin... Dan.
1: Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I, I think I'd met you once before then. Uh, but yeah, Justin filmed with our friend Jake. He filmed the Russell... Yeah, the, the Final Table series. Yeah.
0: That series definitely like kind of inspired me to want a production team. And I think that that's probably a big portion as to why like all of that snowball effect took place where the subsite exists and we're yeah. still doing so much work together because I do think that it's a part of the market that just isn't, t- I mean, the things that you guys have done for us haven't really been replicated anywhere and they're not necessarily catching fire, <laughs> but it's not because of you. <laughs>
1: It's it's odd, because Justin and I do not come from a poker background. Mm. Um, Nate, who also works with us, uh, has more of a poker background, and Dave, kind of the fourth leg of our Pigtails crew, does not have a poker background, and so I think the the, the poker media community is pretty monotone. It's a lot of the same things, Yeah, and um, it's not where our interest lies to do that kind of stuff, and same with you. But yeah, you didn't want to do something that everyone else was doing. Yeah, no, I
0: think storytelling is just like a massive part of content creation, and it's probably where the biggest hole or gap lies. I think probably in most industries, not just poker.
1: Yeah, I think it's a sub community. Like as a sub community, poker is so um, so insulated, mm-hmm. and people share the same things. They listen to the same podcasts. They, it's a lot of the same type of people because, and I mean, you know, this arm share psychology, but because a lot of people came after the boom from this similar experience, you right. know, our age in college, and then realizing, like, oh, maybe I can do this for a living. And so now it's, uh, yeah, it's it, it's it's kind of an echo chamber. But I think any sub-community kind of develops that at some point, and I think that that's been kind of the interesting thing. Like, we wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't... I'm, I'm not going to be too nice to you in this interview, but... Uh, no, you should. If it, <laughs> if it wasn't with you, because there is a... An amount of kind of thoughtfulness and um, restlessness, I guess. Yeah. That is copacetic with with us and you.
0: Yeah. So uh, you kind of mentioned that poker is not your background. I, I want to dig into a little bit of like just what your background is to kind of qualify, sure. you know, how we even got to this point. Yeah. Uh, so you studied undergrad. Uh,
1: yeah. So I grew up in Vermont. Um, not New Hampshire. No, not New Hampshire. Wow. And, uh, At the risk of you losing some subscribers, uh, if you do subscribe to sol for why and you're from New Hampshire, get out. (laughs) We don't want you, we don't want you. Yeah, I grew up in Vermont, uh, went to school, I went to undergrad in Boston at Emerson College. Okay. um, Which is where I met Justin. It's It's a film school, film, TV, school kind of primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I started out there, I was pursuing film, so it's Justin.
0: So this was undergrad for you? Mm-hmm. And this was still undergrad for him? Because I know he began at Maryland.
1: We actually both transferred in. OK. Um, yeah, we both transferred in after our freshman year. And uh, he only spent one year at Emerson. I see. And then went back to Maryland so he could drink and uh, like play beer pong and do keg mm-hmm. stands and stuff, just kind of bro out for a while. Um, I was more serious about my art. Uh, no, I, I stayed in Boston. I switched my major, though. I, I ended up um, majoring in music. So okay. I pursued pretty much every, every career that one should not go to college for. Right.
0: Like, if, it, if there's a dead end, Yeah. It's like, you're wait. on that path. I found a lot of dead ends. Yeah. yeah. I respect that. <laughs> I feel like I, I, I can relate a lot. Really? Uh, I, I mean, I joke, but I say like I went to college for baseball. Yeah. Because I really did. Yeah. I made almost all of my decisions based on like playing time and if I had a path forward and things of that nature. I was lucky enough that I fell into a school that had like a decent comp side program, but I yeah. only did computer science because going into my sophomore year, they're like, you have to pick a major. And I'm like, yeah, about that. I'm 19. I don't know what the fuck I want to do other than play baseball. It's they're insane. Like,
1: I, I don't understand how, I mean, I do because it's all money based, but. To ask people at that age to uh, to decide what they realistically not just want to do because that's what happens that's what we both did yeah but to decide what they should do right and take on a massive amount of debt to pursue what you want to do right you know um, yeah it's insane I, I switched my major five to, I think I ended up with two. Uh, two minors just because I qualified for it. I wasn't even trying, mm-hmm. but because I switched my major and took so many different kind of classes. Like, I, yeah. That sounds expensive, Travis. Oh, and we haven't even gotten to grad school yet. <laughs> that was my follow-up. So uh,
0: what, did, what did grad school look like with a music degree?
1: Well, so there was a, actually a lot of years in between there. Um, when I finished undergrad, I moved out to Seattle with some friends. Um, I tried to pursue uh, working in the music industry at like KEXP, different radio stations and stuff like that. But I really just wanted to be a musician. Um, You know, I wanted to be a songwriter. And um, I come from a family of musicians. My sister went to school for music. My dad is a bluegrass musician. My mom was in a band with my dad, my uncles, my cousins. So I think because of that, I had this distorted reality thinking that uh, music was a career that one could pursue and eventually find some success in, which, you know, who knows if I could have, but... What was your genre of choice? I mean, I've all over the... But at the time when I was doing it, it was like really... Uh, I wanted to be Elliot Smith, and, you know, it's really hard to be Elliot Smith, and it's hard for somebody else to be Elliot Smith. It was hard for Elliot Smith to be Elliot Smith, right. that's why he stabbed himself in the heart twice, so... Mm. Um, But then after that, I did... The second one's pretty impressive. Yeah, (laughs) the second one is you really want to die. Yeah. Uh, After that, I uh, did AmeriCorps. When I moved out to Seattle, I bartended full-time. Well, I did AmeriCorps, and then I did the Peace Corps. Um, So I went to Ethiopia, and then I went to the Philippines for two and a half years. And after the Peace Corps, I moved to Denver, and the idea was to go to grad school, which I did, but really I wanted to go there. Uh, Justin and Nate and those guys were all living there, and we wanted to start making stuff again. Okay. Um, so I essentially went to grad school as a reason to start making comedy videos with my friends. That seems reasonable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it sort of worked out. I mean, you guys have
0: a very viral video.
1: Uh, Pitch Perfect 237, Pitch Perfect. yeah. Um, well, we did mostly, you know, self-indulgent kind of. We would film it, and we had no idea really how to do that. Just and I kind of come from a background writing and writing more than like performing, and um, the other two guys. So there's that separate produ- production company that we run is Cook Street Productions. That's the umbrella that we make the comedy stuff in. And Nate is part of that group, and you know, he's he's very funny. The other guy is Evan. He's also funny. Um, and we would make these comedy videos that were way too, like, you know, about ridiculous, like the first video that we had some see, like featured on funnier Die's front page was called Girth Control. It's about guys Very who want good. smaller dicks. Like um, the whole goal when we were doing stuff back then at the time, we just wanted to uh, make stuff with each other. Um, we had no kind of ambition or understanding how to grow or like be successful. And we kind of stumbled into some of that stuff. And that's what happened with Pitch Perfect 237 is there is a documentary called Room 237, which is about all the different conspiracy theories surrounding The Shining. Mm-hmm. Stanley Kubrick staged the moon landing um, for the government and The Shining was his way of telling us that. Sure. Things like that. Sure. And just these bonkers things. and. So we wanted to do the same thing, but for a dumber piece of content. And we're saying that the movie Pitch Perfect is all about 9-11 and um, floated a few different conspiracies around that. It's Um, great. Were there any benefits,
0: uh, like monetarily speaking, to getting something to that view count? No. Yeah.
1: Even if, uh, I don't know what they would have been if we'd used our own content, but because we used...
0: Oh, I can guesstimate for you. Yeah, it's not it's much. Not much. Yeah. It's like a hundred bucks per hundred thousand views. Right.
1: Yeah. I guess the biggest benefit is we got a bunch of subscribers. That was Sure. It. But you know, Justin and I moved to LA. The other guys stayed in Denver, so we just don't really make stuff for that company very often.
0: Yeah. Know. We we just breezed through the fact that you were overseas in the Peace Corps for a long period of time. How did you go from doing some like? Altruistic, selfless <laughs> type of uh, pursuit to landing in a comedy it's quintuplet? <laughs> what, what are you guys?
1: Yeah, I guess I quintuplet. Um, I guess the answer to that is through indifference and <laughs> ego, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the, the grad school program I did was not in, you know, Comedy production, <laughs> sure. Um, but I've been writing. This is true for both Justin and me. I um, I've been writing since I was like, whether it's short, like you know, stories or. So um, fil- I started doing film stuff when I was in high school. Uh, I won the Vermont Young Playwright Contest. Mm. So. We'd always kind of understood that we wanted to. Uh, start making stuff again. Um, and living in the same city made that possible.
0: No, I understand the decision to go to grad school. I mean, I guess I understand the reason why. I, I kind of want to understand a little bit better where the hell the Peace Corps fit in, in all this.
1: My mom worked at uh, nonprofits my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up as a better person than I turned into. Um, it felt like a natural progression to me at the time. I did AmeriCorps before. I, when I did AmeriCorps, I was working with Habitat for Humanity and a lot of the families that um, we selected were East African um, because they didn't have debt because they didn't grow up in America. Sure. And there's a large East Af- like Somalian and Ethiopian population there, uh, Eritrean too. And um, working with those families is like, just really kind of pushed me into it. So I really wanted to do that. Um, and then went to Ethiopia and then the Philippines. So like all of that made sense at the time. It's just weird how, I guess it doesn't feel weird to me because it's my life. But the other part of it is that, uh, you know, you're the same way. Like I have a lot of different interests Yeah. and like, even with comedy, um, and like narrative filmmaking, I think I would always want to do documentary. You know, it's, it's a way to explore things that you're interested in. Right. Um, So the Peace Corps kind of felt like that in a way. That
0: makes sense. And documentaries uh, kind of were put onto your radar through grad school, I assume?
1: Kind of, yeah, um, kind of. I I mean, I'd always wanted to do them. We did make a, uh, not Cook Street, but we made a documentary short um, with a friend of ours, AJ Oscarson, um, when I was living in Denver. He was trying to get into documentary. I was too... and it was about uh, injection drug users who scrap metal. Um, so we would go hang out at like homeless camps and try to meet people who scrapped metal, who were willing to be on film, and who also were injection drug. It's a weird, you know, like. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we made that when I was, during grad school, and that kind of like pushed me over. So uh, yeah. it's. It- I think I've always wanted to do documentary as much as I wanted to do the other stuff.
0: Tell me a little bit more about that experience because you you've told me personally, and I find it interesting, how do you like separate yourself as the, the storyteller slash filmmaker in that particular instance from just like, you know, you're already a natural kind of humanitarian, so to mm-hmm. see people living in, in destitute like this where they're willing to basically by any means necessary ensure that they get high rather than get fed,
1: I think this is true with not even outside of film. I guess it is the outside part of filmmaking. So it's like connections. Like once you meet somebody, it stops, once you develop a relationship with somebody, they stop becoming an injection drug user. And Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, it's just the guy's name. Yeah. Um, And like we, one guy specifically in that documentary, we developed a really close relationship with him. He was living in an abandoned dentist's office. We like followed him into a, uh, an abandoned. Uh, what the hell is the name of the pie place? Um, it's, it's like the big restaurants that specializes in pies. Marie, no, Marie Callender's. You know what that is? Totally unfamiliar. Um, like we, he broke in through the rooftop of this like three-story building. Oh, you were a part of
0: a heist. Yeah,
1: we didn't do anything. Sure. Uh, we just filmed it. Just we're, captured it and then turned it to the police. I understand. <laughs> yes. <laughs> At the time, we didn't have a lawyer, so there was no one telling us not to. understand. But I mean, it was intense and, you know, but he was, he was great. He was charismatic. He was a really sweet guy who just was in a lot of trouble. And I think that's kind of the same with, like, you have to develop an interest in the people you're filming or else you're not going to want to do it. Right. And um, it's relatively easy when you meet the right people.
0: Is know? that part of the allure for documentary filming for you?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it, it, it just happens. It's weird to find people who are willing to be filmed. Who, and we'll talk about *To Be Determined* a little bit later. But this is the true. This is true with Oscar and *To Be Determined*. Is you don't want somebody who desperately wants to be filmed. Right. Um, you want somebody who is willing to be, and can understand the value of doing it. But you don't want to make it all about their ego. You know.
0: I, I've heard you throw around the term. Masturbatory project many, many, many times. I talk about times.
1: masturbatory a lot. Yeah.
0: yeah. So. Uh, and I, I think that that's something that I've been overly cognizant of through all the stuff that we've developed. Yeah. Um, you know, results may vary, comes to mind.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and that was kind of like more of a pigtails project than a solve for why project, despite yeah. the fact that we were the subjects.
1: And I think that was pretty masturbatory for us. <laughs> sure, sure, but
0: but that's that doesn't count, right? Because like we're not really breaking the fourth wall in any capacity. There. I mean, like
1: honestly, the look the poker community uh, is ridiculous, and um, I, I don't I mean that lovingly, but it really is. And you know, we we've, we've been talking to you about doing a mockumentary series or, or film about poker for years now. Because there's just there's so much to make fun of, and you know, like it's it's kind of like Pitch Perfect. It's it's having the way I like to say it is. It's not making fun of. It's having fun with. Sure, uh, sure. Which is a, a real LA thing to say. But um, you know, it's it's a it's a small community that has that kind of exists like outside of the rest of the world, so like, the, the the way that, the things that are normal in the poker community and the conversations that are had are just so different from, you know, where it is, and, and a lot of times you guys don't see it, but the with Solve For Why, like, you guys have really let us have fun with it and are in on the joke, and, um, you know, even if it's, we've done things that are embarrassing for you a lot. Sure, and You're You're sure. down to do it, so I mean, I think like what
0: the results may vary, it was kind of a combination of trying to tie together all the, the skill sets that you guys have acquired and just use us to the best of your ability. So it's, you know, we had seen the, the comedic sketches, like the intro to the Doug Polk Retired Me video. Mm-hmm. And we'd seen your documentary ability with Dead Money. Mm-hmm. And when we were coming up with a project for the summer of 2018, 2017.
1: 2017. Yeah, man, time flies. That's crazy.
0: It was like, well, the vlog has been successful, the sketches have been successful, the documentary has been successful. How can we just wrap it all up in one? And uh, you guys just seemed down to to kind of like do that whole. I don't want to call it a mockumentary because it seems it seems uh, a little bit reductive.
1: Well, there were yeah. I mean, some of the mockumentary elements that we want. Have wanted to do for this other project. We just kind of blend. We kind of just folded in Because mm-hmm. um, we still were documenting what was happening to you guys, right? Um, that was fun, and it was not fun to do because it was time crunch Yeah, it was we put out one a week and usually it was only one of us there at a time and um, You guys played constantly, right? Um
0: I think the scene where you and Nate are constantly scrambling to rush to the Rio right. for for a big event that's going to occur, and right. it just progressively uh, escalates where you get a text like, Berkey's chip leading, hurry up, get down here, and then three seconds later, I'm out.
1: Yeah, that felt very real. <laughs> that, yeah. was, that happened to me. Yeah, that was just
0: like the entire summer in a nutshell. Yeah,
1: well, and you guys, you know, th- like the previous summer, you've done really well. I think it was the previous summer. And, you know, with this one, this summer, we just... No one had a very big summer.
0: Oh yeah, so it was 18. You're right. It was 18. 2017 is when we had all the final tables. Right. I, for whatever reason, I was thinking that we hit a home run and we just made a bunch of deep runs, but we didn't. Yeah. Not, not yeah, even Not, close. not, that, year. <laughs> not
1: 18, that year. 18 was Brick City. I think we've, been, I, we've kind of snake bit you since Dead Money. I think that we got <laughs> our, Berkey won a lot of money. Well, we had cameras on him thing. And ever since then, uh, we've been a bad luck. That him. was
0: one of the most surreal experiences for me ever, not just because it was uh, kind of like a bullet point moment in my career, but more so just the reaction of having you guys around. Yeah, we're just little boys. <laughs> well, you're just like, you're not insiders, so right. like everything is a big deal, and you know how much of the story arc hinges on yeah. me doing well. So just the sheer anxiety oh, that man. like you guys <laughs> as a crew, and then also Christian just like from the outside looking in, Yeah, it was... Palpable yeah, at all moments.
1: It was debilitating, I, like <laughs> especially with you because you're a maniac. and You were the first person to go in, and cameras all rushed around you. We didn't even know what was going on, but we were like, "Are they talking about because you know if you're on the floor like you didn't hear? Right. There's no announcer, right? Right? Um, so we rushed over. We're frantically. We realized you we were all in. And we like holding up cameras. We're shaking because we know if you you're the first to bust, like there's no story. There's no project. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, you just were sitting there like this, and then, cause we didn't know what you had either. Mm-hmm. Um, and it worked, yeah, it worked out.
0: Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, definitely definitely a pleasant experience. I was happy to have you guys along for the ride. Yeah.
1: It's,
0: <laughs> it's uh, like, so do you ever yeah. like look back on those projects and cringe?
1: Oh, I cringe at everything I've ever done. Uh, I haven't watched Dead Money since we made it. Really? Yeah. This sounds like um, Adam Driver saying like he never watches what he does. That, yeah. That's not, that's not it, um, but technically and like equipment and stuff we've just grown a lot since then yeah i I haven't wanted to Given given the assets i'm proud of dead money though i think yeah no i I,
0: obviously it was hey this is an award-winning docuseries that's right we beat a picture in a book that's right um (laughs) given the assets that you had available to you then like i don't want to say like you would upgrade equipment or anything all those lines but given what you had available to you then is there anything you would have changed in that project
1: one of the things that i think is an easy kind of thing to fall into and becomes a crutch is when you're making things that are episodic, they become formulaic because you have you know 10, 12 minutes and you're trying to accomplish maybe three different things, whether they're storylines or beats or something like that. And a lot of times, uh, and this is a crutch that we still have, is it'll fall into uh, like a candid section where there's no music and then a kind of musical, a a musical B-roll section. I think that we do that because it works, but I also think that my favorite documentaries avoid that kind of thing as much as possible Yeah. and and really kind of sit in the candid moments. So I
0: think you guys are selling yourself a little bit short because uh, I would say in at least Dead Money, um, but also results may vary too from a comedic standpoint, I think you guys do a good job of evoking emotion, uh, which, for me, watching a documentary is the easiest way to hook me. Yeah. You know, whether it's a murder mystery where like I I have some curiosity, or it's uh, you know a, a story of hardship where I have some empathy. Like that's how you really get your hooks into somebody for a, a ninety-minute feature.
1: Well, and, and to be fair, like you know, there's. <laughs> a lot of the content in Dead Money made, was lends to that. Yeah. And, you know, the public conception of you, at least at the time, was there was a lot, because a bunch of shitty things happened to you when you were sure. younger, uh, there was a lot on the bone there for us.
0: I guess, like, transitioning off of that episodic type of documentary, you mm-hmm. just finished a feature
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, that we will be releasing on our site and will be on Poperville called To Be Determined. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what your vision was for this project. And I'm saying that with like air quotes because sure. I kind of like said, hey, we're doing this.
1: Yeah, well, you know, what you would talk to us about was was documenting the experience of like a low level grinder. And especially as poker continues to get harder, um, more people kind of get pushed out even though, or people get pushed to the boundaries a little bit yeah. faster, maybe yeah. is a better way to put it.
0: There are a lot of people dying on the fringe.
1: Right. And the guy we picked, Oscar, who is a friend of Christian's for a long time, um, you'd met him before, and as soon as you met him, you thought this is kind of the perfect guy to do this because he really is kind of um, embodies a lot of the characteristics that you were looking for in, in this kind of story. Um, when we met him, I was like this, that's when I kind of was sold on the project. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we ended up hooking up with this, uh, you know, I think he's going to officially be listed as the second unit director, um, Jacob Gossett, who is a New York-based filmmaker, musician, um, and he was again just kind of he was perfect. He was a perfect fit for us. He he got along with Oscar really well. He is really good at what he does. He was a one-man crew. He was able to spend you know over a year kind of documenting that stuff. It was challenging for a million reasons, and. Um, the, the biggest pressure, not personal pressure, although a lot of it kind of spilled over, I think, is mm-hmm. wanting to make sure us, like protect Oscar kind of as much as possible, because he's, when we did Dead Money, you hired us. Right. And like, you know, even back then, like we were friends, like starting to be friends, but we wouldn't do anything that made you feel uncomfortable, but we could also talk to you about what made you uncomfortable. Yeah. And in the edit process with Oscar, and even just coming up with what stories to follow and how to follow it, um, I don't know Oscar very well, and so I. But I know that he was uncomfortable doing this, and I really didn't want to embarrass him. Um, and I also like really respect him. I think he, uh, I think he's really thoughtful, and I think he's a product of how the game has changed, mm-hmm. and not just the game, but like, you know, one of the people we interviewed, Maria, who um, I hope will be on this at some point. I hope so too, yeah. Uh, who's great, she uh, she talked about the sunk cost fallacy, and this is a thing that exists in poker as well as a lot of other industries, which is just the idea that once you put an amount of time into something, um, that means that it, Makes sense to keep putting time into it, right. and, as opposed to cutting ties and pursuing something else. Yeah, and you see this in poker a lot. And I, you know, honestly, the I think the reason to be determined became such a personal project is because it also mirrors filmmaking. You know, poker and filmmaking is these are two career non-traditional careers um, that are really, really hard to find success in, sustain success in. There's no specific roadmap to follow. And if you try to pick one, because there are a lot of people who, you know, it's in poker, there are training sites, obviously, but also cautionary tales and stuff like that. Um, in filmmaking, it's a lot of, there are, you know, save the cat. There are books that tell you this is what you need to do, or this is how you write a script in 30 days and things like that. And, um, you know, people buy those because they're desperate and they really want to do something. And so, it, yeah, it struck a chord with me because um, it's what we're trying to do, too.
0: So I guess to follow up on that a little bit, uh, this was a long journey. We started recording beginning of 2018. Yeah. So we're talking about almost two full years mm-hmm. of full production. I guess talk to me a little bit about, uh, You know, I, I, I know a little bit more intimately sure. what the road bumps looked like. So talk to me a little bit about like what that process was like and maybe a little bit of the difference between, or, or the slippery slope perhaps, uh, between hitting a wall and actually falling into depression.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know when people say they don't want to watch a documentary because uh, it's too depressing. Yeah. Um, the act of killing, I think, is the best documentary I've ever seen, and it's you know, it's one of the hardest things to watch that I've ever seen. Uh, when people say like, don't put that a certain type of music on because it makes it like, makes them sad. Like, I don't have that. I I don't get sad from music I love that is sad. Yeah. Um, so I've always thought I was kind of immune in a weird way to that kind of thing, but it, it, and honestly, th- to be honest, I'm still figuring a lot of this out because mm-hmm. um, it's, it's hard to look at something and describe why it is the way it is when it's happening to you. So essentially, I don't know how much of this, uh, of the kind of struggles I went through in the last year and a half were based on um, what's going on in my brain chemistry Uh, my family history, and um, my situation. And the situation was, in a lot of ways, stuck inside this documentary about a pretty heavy topic um, for over a year. And I didn't think it had anything to do with it until I finished the first draft and sent it out. And I immediately, it was like I had felt like a completely different person for a week or two. Yeah. I also don't want to, you know, okay, there's two things, because I I have a history of suffering with, I guess, anxiety, Mm -hmm. um, is kind of the way I thought about it, Um, but in the last year and a half, it's been a very different thing. It's felt a lot more like lethargy, just being kind of overwhelmed by lethargy, Yeah. Um, and there's this is, this, I don't know how you'll feel about this. This is a personal thing. I, In the last couple years, there's been a this big push, and this is great um, for the most part, uh, and mental health awareness and understanding and understanding that it doesn't look the same on everyone. The word depression can mean a ton of different things. I had a bigger kind of understanding about this because of stuff that's happened with my family and friends over the years. Um, but... Uh, This move where athletes are coming out to talk about their own mental health struggles, the NBA, uh, as a league, the commissioner, Adam Silver, said he thinks like, I think it was 50%, there's a huge percentage of the players in the league suffer from some sort of depression um, or anxiety issue. And this is obviously great that people are talking about it. And this happened in the poker community, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, This is probably cynical, but I'm a little uncomfortable with the idea that people can start commodifying that conversation um, to be able to use it to improve their brand or talk about. Like, I don't have a brand, so it's not like right, that's, a, right. that's but a thing here. To draw
0: the empathy between them and the the, the consumer base or it, fan it, it base. It feels
1: whatever. a little bit like a move. And again, I don't. I think this is 90% a good thing, and this is a really cynical way to look at it, but sure. it's hard not to be cynical when you're looking at brand building and stuff yeah. like
0: that. I mean, I think to some degree it makes a lot of sense that uh, athletes are suffering from this, a filmmaker like yourself is suffering from this, a poker player may be suffering from this, because you're, you're put into the performance realm, right? And maybe as a creative type, it doesn't feel that way, but what what they all have in common is a sense of perfectionism. Right. So whether you're the sixth man off the bench or LeBron James, everybody's aspiring to be Michael Jordan. Right. And if you don't achieve that level, it's it it kind of always feels like you have to push harder for more.
1: You know what's weird is at least for me, and you know I love to compare myself to LeBron James. I do it often, but sure. um, the the actual results of making something honestly doesn't matter to me all that much. And maybe that's survival instinct or, mm-hmm. um, or experience, <laughs> yeah. but overall that isn't all that important to me anymore. And maybe even more, a better way to say it is interesting to me is like, once I finish something, I don't, I wish somebody else would just take it and do all the things you have to do with it to try and make it successful. Oh, of
0: course. I mean, I went through this with coding too. It's like, I loved writing the algorithms. I don't want to actually code it. Right. And like for you, you know, build the storyline. Go ahead and shoot shoot all the creative shots and and string everything together in the order you want. But you don't want to do color and sound.
1: No, I don't. Um, But I think one thing I'm trying to figure out now, trying to understand, and I bet you can relate to this. One of my... uh, Funny to call him a writing hero, but like uh, I love the way he talks about story. And is uh, Dan Harmon, who you know did Community, um, does Rick and Morty. But he he's the way he thinks and talks about storytelling is is like really rings home with me, um, just like a lot of other white men. But he um, he was on a podcast one time, and I heard him talking about. I don't want to sell this off as my own. Um, when he started going to therapy. Uh, his therapist said something about well clearly you 're a workaholic, and he bristled at that and said um, i don 't get to call myself a workaholic because of my out my output isn't big enough mm-hmm. i don't i don 't finish anything i don't like i haven't done enough to call qual- like he felt imposter syndrome at being called a workaholic right, and what she told him was one of the most common but maybe not common but one of the most debilitating forms of workaholism is keeping yourself from finishing something so that you always have something to do you always have something you need to do you're always stuck in that weird little spot where when people contact you you say i can't right now because i'm too busy i have to do this thing and you you stick yourself in that place and like dig your toes in and you make sure you can't get out of that and Probably the scary part about it is, like, why don't you want to get out of it? Um, it's probably something about recognizing, like, wait, what is my actual life, not yeah. like being in work. And this is a thing that, like, as soon as I heard that, I was like, oh, you motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. no,
0: is... I 100% relate to that in a different way. I just don't say no to anything. Right. So, like, I'll just continually add stuff to my plate until it overflows, and then I can claim to be overwhelmed. Right. When I just did it to myself.
1: Yeah, it's all it's all self inflicted. And this is I mean, this is a thing I've done to myself my entire life, I think. Yeah. And finish- uh,
0: You know what it really is? It's arrogance.
1: Definitely arrogance.
0: It's so much hubris where you're just like, yeah. I can conquer the world if I just feel like
1: it. And I can make something that uh, I don't love into something I love just by beating my head against it over right. and over and over again. And this is something like you've told like most of the things that i get concerned and caught up with and when i'm making something is things that i will only i will notice and if i'm not even rewatching it like what the, what what the fuck am i doing yeah So yeah, I think it's it's similar to bristle at saying perfectionism or something like that. It's like basically fiddling, like you're fiddling with something to make it, uh, you're taking a piece of bread and just adding seeds into it or something, but it's going to taste exactly the same.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to shift gears a little bit because there's something that really stuck out to me from this film that I think everybody should pay attention to. So I don't think this is one of those small nuances, but I do think it's something that could very quickly be overlooked if you're not paying close attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a scene, in particular, where um, you very creatively play with time. And I was just blown away by this four or five minute stretch, but I could easily see, especially in a documentary where you're kind of half watching, half distracted, mm-hmm. uh, it, it kind of being glossed over. Um, Maria Konnikova kind of serves as the narrator through all this, and she is like gracefully outlining our flawed relationship with variance and skill, and she and risk and risk, yeah. yeah, yeah, risk as a whole. She's referencing John von Neumann, the founder of game theory. You know, for those who are unaware, uh, I, I believe he developed it in mid '40s-ish.
1: Pictures look like '30s, '40s. Yeah, I mid mean, '30s, '40s something. I mean, he, something he along helped develop the atomic bomb. So right.
0: Okay, so yeah, we're we're in that uh, World War II era, uh, and there was some footage that you dug up. Of him kind of speaking yeah. on game theory. Uh, can you like walk me through how you arrived at that sequence of events?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we ended up doing about 20 interviews uh, with different poker pros who either had considered leaving poker, had left poker, have never considered leaving poker. And, you know, the interest for us there is to kind of look at the thought process depending on your um, success level and stuff like that. And Maria's an odd she has had a different experience than everyone mm-hmm. because she started playing poker to research a book. And because of that, you know, she's a PhD and she's a writer. She writes for the New Yorker sometimes. And it's very intellectual the way she talks and thinks about, um, not just the actual game, because like you guys talk in language after five years, I still will never understand. Sure. But the actual um, thought processes of, of the people who play and can connect it to the outside world in ways that I think... Uh, are really cool and with that section the way Maria talked about risk it felt like a complete thought to me mm-hmm. um, and showing b-roll of poker did not uh, lead it did not get to what I thought she was what was interesting about what she was talking about right um, and generally I think the idea with this is you want to you know because you're not just talking about poker success because we're following oscar's life you want to connect it to as many different people in their experience as possible because oscar's experience mirrors the world right. in ways that yours does not yeah I, I i felt at least and i'm glad you kind of agreed by doing it with archive footage i I felt like it was easier to make those dots connect.
0: I thought it was, yeah, I mean, I, I think like the visual bell and whistle that's so cool was taking the super high roller cash game footage yeah. and kind of like blending it from uh, matching that like 1930s style footage yeah. into modern day and then like progressing the storyline forward there. Uh, that That's something that I think could very easily be overlooked and uh, I I guess I just wanted to shine a light on it. Oh yeah, um, because it does seem like, especially for you as a filmmaker, you've like opened my eyes to a lot of things that are very nuanced that the casual viewer may miss, and I imagine that that's a big frustration in actually like building these projects.
1: It can be, but you know, if people are focusing on things that I wish they weren't, or are focusing on. Uh, the wrong thing, like there are. I guess there are no wrong things. You can't control the way somebody receives a message. You can only control sure. the way you construct it. And um, that section, it pleases me to hear that. Like, I like. I knew you were gonna like that. Song. Yeah, of course. But it won't resonate with other people, and you know, the film won't resonate with plenty of people, mm. um, and that's fine. But the uh, obviously, I like being. You know, I like being told <laughs> I'm a good boy.
0: Of course, of course. <laughs> um. So uh, one last question about 2D determined, sure. uh, or one last specific question: um, You basically served as director, producer, filmmaker, editor. Uh, would you say that all these hats are like pretty common in, in this particular industry?
1: No, it's, and it's also it's, there's a reason it's not. Right. Um, like we, you know, we filmed it too, and. Uh, uh, it's what we do and what you do is a, is similar because it's uh, essentially a startup. You're trying to can, you're trying to build a business from the ground up. Mm. And um, I've told you this before. I, th- I kind of consider it like a nonprofit where you end up wearing hats that uh, maybe you shouldn't wear, and more hats than you should wear. Right. Um, and out of necessity, but all, eventually necessity can kind of lean into control, or it lends to people who have control issues, and that's definitely uh, something I struggle with, something um, you struggle with, something Justin also struggles with, and sure. you know, you, being able to recognize when you need help and ask for it, or when somebody could do something better than you could, um, or close to uh, what you could do, and not even like if what you can do is better, but like a similar style, or like being able to express to somebody or communicate what you're looking for, and trust that they'll be able to execute.
0: It's the hardest part about like having a business. Yeah. I, I don't I mean, even want to say CEO, but just like starting anything.
1: You it's constantly so hard. do tasks that you should not. do. I mean, like somebody in your position should not. Uh, I mean, I'm still making thumbnails You're for making a YouTube. Thumbnails, page. Yeah. yeah.
0: But I enjoy it. Uh, yeah. It is sort of a release. Uh, I would love to be able to delegate it. Yeah. And I hope someday that I will. Uh, for the time being, it's like a hat that I don't mind wearing. I just have to be very mindful of starting to mind some of the hats. Yeah. And when I do mind them, finding somebody else who's just, or maybe not even just as good, but adequate enough.
1: Yeah, that I can and, that pass can, the buck. and that can listen to what you tell them you want, and then right. produce it. Yeah. Right.
0: Uh, If you had it your way, uh, what would be your ideal subject, uh, person, or subject material to make a documentary about?
1: Uh, I want to make a romantic comedy that takes place in the belly of a whale, and so if I couldn't do that, a scripted version I would like to make. Actually a documentary about that would be kind of perfect. Fascinating. Yeah.